Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Reasonable Doubt, the podcast. My name is Rob Rosen. I'm the executive producer and creator of Reasonable Doubt. And my name is Detective Chris Anderson. I'm a retired homicide investigator and co-host of Reasonable Doubt. And I'm Fatima Silva, criminal defense attorney and co-host of Reasonable Doubt. All right. So we are on every Monday night, 10 p.m. on Investigation Discovery. And we're going to talk about the David Thorne case. Now, if you haven't seen it yet, Please pause the podcast. Nothing but spoilers coming up. Watch the show and then come back to us. I think mastermind cases are fascinating, but probably me more than you guys. I just find them like really, really hard to unravel. It always seems plausible that maybe the person didn't mastermind it, that maybe other people acted on their own. I think they're different. I mean, they're extremely difficult to prove. Um, But I think when there's enough connection, you know, and you have one party that is easily manipulated, one that is kind of the mentor older brother relationship. Um, you always have to go into it with an open mind and, you know, try to connect those dots. And, and in this case, I know we definitely were trying to figure out, okay, if, if we come to the conclusion that we cannot eliminate Joe Wilkes as part of this crime, then we have to look at what was his incentive to do it on his own. And that's the way we had to break it down in our analysis of this case. All right. So before we really do a deep dive into this case and what went into your decision, let's just give everybody a little bit of a refresher on the David Thorne case. Alliance, Ohio, April 1st, 1999. 26-year-old Yvonne Lane is found dead in her home. Her throat is slashed. There's no sign of forced entry, and her four young children in the house are unharmed. Police quickly focus in on the victim's ex, a man named David Thorne. He's the father of one of her kids, and the two are in the middle of a court battle over custody. But Thorne has an airtight alibi, and the case goes cold. Until three months later, acting on a tip... Police pick up 18-year-old Joe Wilkes. He's interrogated 
and eventually confesses. Okay. Wilkes says he killed Yvonne, but David Thorne paid him $300 to do it. Are you willing to testify in court against Dave Thorne? Okay. January 2000. David Thorne stands trial. The prosecution's case is highly circumstantial. It all comes down to whether the jury believes the testimony of Joe Wilkes. They do. After a five-day trial, the jury convicts. Wilkes gets a life sentence with the chance of parole after 30 years. David Thorne receives a life sentence without the possibility of parole. All right, so you guys met with the loved ones, obviously, on the first day. There was Josh, who was his friend, and Sue, who to me seemed... I, I don't mean to put uh, an unkind twist on this, but really like the ultimate prison wife. It seemed like she was going to be very hard to convince no matter what. I didn't get the sense that on the first day, even when we sat down with her, that she would listen to anything we said outside of David being innocent of this crime. So, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Um, I, I do admire her fight for sure, but I, I definitely went into this knowing we could probably paint a picture for her and it really wouldn't matter because she's just someone who is going to, um, you know, continue to try to poke holes into things and, um, you know, want her, want her husband home. And in fact, when we met with her on, on day one, despite all the evidence that Chris and I had to go through that week, despite everything we already had from the courts and the transcripts and the experts and all of that, um, she had a very, very, very large binder with her that I, I believe she that's, probably that's, carries That's always a bad sign. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I just think I I think that um, she's done so much work on it. I, I actually I appreciated that because I am, as you both know, <laughs> I am very into details, and um, I appreciated that she was so detail oriented. She had this binder, and she was very organized and it had a lot more information in it that we didn't have because it was sourced from other places. It was after the trial and it's things, you know, news clippings she found or even investigation that she's done on her own. Um, and so I thought, oh yeah, you know, I'd love that binder. Thank you. And I, there's a joke. I mean, everybody says that week, I, everywhere I went, I had this huge, you know, three ring binder with me because I wanted to make sure that at the end of the week, no matter what happened, that I had gone through every single page of that binder so that I can offer her, um, you know, so that I could tell her I reviewed it. Here are my thoughts on that. Or we did ask about that, whatever it may be. What was ironic in her scenario, um, and obviously this doesn't end up on on the show. This is, you know, uh, everything that it, our conversations with these families are very long. They're hours long, everyone. So what you see on the show is just a little condensed version. But, you know, I had to explain to her and, and after that whole week and going through that whole binder, I appreciated that binder, but um, it worked against him so much. There were so many things in there that I was able to put together other pieces that she helped me. And I, and I thought, ultimately, I thought, how do you not, how are you still here honestly believing that at least Joe Wilkes um, had no part in this? Because this binder here substantiates a lot of evidence that I was missing um, that kind of puts together the timeline or any questions I may have had. So that was very interesting that maybe she just chose not to see the connections there. I think that's the key word, chose not to see. And then Josh, I thought, was a... Uh... A pretty interesting character in that um, 
you know, a lot of this comes back to the idea that David Thorne was sort of this uh, David Koresh-like figure, as the police chief said, and Josh seemed to be one of his, uh, one of the peoples who worshipped him, who, who, and, and his name kept coming up in the investigation in different ways. Yeah, you know, I don't know how much I agree with uh, the chiefs, uh, even though I appreciate the chief coming in and, and speaking with us because we don't have a lot of law enforcement officers that are willing to talk about these cases after a conviction has been obtained. So I appreciate Chief Dordia for coming in and sitting down and talking to me and kind of helping me guide through or help me understand more of what happened during the case. But at the same time, I, I don't know how much I can agree with him given the analogy of uh, David Koresh and, and, and reference to David Thorne. Yeah. And, but I, I did mention at the end of this, this episode that, uh, you know, there was this blind devotion. And, and what I meant by saying that is if you choose to overlook all of the evidence that points towards Joe Wilkes's guilt and still group his case along with David's case, then you are involved in some sort of blind devotion because these cases cases are so intertwined and then there's so much information that corroborates uh, 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 that David's involvement that, you know, you can't just overlook that. So that's what I meant when I said uh, there's a blind devotion as it pertains to Josh. Yeah, I like I like that the episode left in my mind being blown about <laughs> them being ninety five percent sure <laughs> that Joe Wilkes was not involved. Oh yeah, that was it, that was staying in. That was it exploded. In. I was just like, wait a minute, okay. And, and and this is one of the main issues we had in this case is from the start. You know what you think the family wants to do because what I would want to do is I mean if we're looking at the case and as it pertains to David Thorne. Um, I would want to separate Joe from David. That mm-hmm. would be my mission as a family, as a loved one. Let me That's separate the only those way. two. That's the I, only way you're going right, to be able to right. find And anything. I would say, I don't care what David tells you. Um, you know, he, he's maybe just, you know, protecting his friend who he thinks has been manipulated. But I'm going to tell you right now, I think Joe did it, but I, I don't, I know that David had nothing to do with it. You know, if that was the approach, um, not that the case would have turned out differently because we did find a lot of connection there that we'll get into, but um, at least in that aspect, you can say, okay, this family's not in denial. They can see mm-hmm. at least that they could see the case and the facts uh, are, are heavy against Joe Wilkes. Um, but when they kept saying, well, no, you know, we think that Joe lied. We don't think Joe had anything to do with it. That's when it's like, okay, but we we have to come to some common sense here. We really do. We have to, after going through all of this, there's no way you can sit here and say, well, I just, I think that it's 95% um, you know, not possible that it was Joe Wilkes. That, that can't be after we've gone through all this information and and we'll get into it here. So I have a question. One of the, uh, leads, um, was that there were other suspects, other people who might've had a motive or opportunity to kill Yvonne Lane, uh, the victim in this case. Now, Chris, you had a chance to ask the police chief about that. And I want to play a clip of it and to ask you if you were satisfied with the answer, because the answer seemed, mm, it seemed like it left some, some room for doubt. The family claims that Yvonne was spending time with a former cop who had a history of violence. Is there any truth to that? I can tell you that the police officer was terminated by me about a month before the murder. We tried to reach out to him. He wouldn't communicate with us. Did that not give you any pause for any, any type of concern? When we developed David Thorne and Wilkes as suspects, what happened eclipsed everybody else. 
So this law enforcement officer, he never was really just ruled out. It's just the investigation took another path. Yes, sir. Absolutely. What you want to do when you're investigating cases is you want to try to close as many gaps in any story as you can. That was a gap that was not closed. And now that we're at the point of this person is claiming that they were wrongfully convicted, it becomes much, much huge, a much larger problem than what in the beginning when they first uh, started this investigation than, than what it was in the beginning. But I can honestly say that the information that these investigators found out, I probably would have followed the trail that at least I know I would have followed that trail. Then I would definitely he would have been coming down to my office to give me a statement or we would have been recording something or or doing an interview at his home because I just would not have left that stone unturned. But, you know, that that's just the way that I work cases. Maybe, you know. Maybe I don't do things the way some people do. There were a lot of suspects. There absolutely was. I remember there was a friend of Yvonne's that was a female that she had been in a a fight with, um, an actual physical encounter um, that she was looked into. There's the the father of all her other children. um, And he was actually in jail at the time um, and didn't seem like he had any, you know, motive um, because she was taking care of all of his children. Um, And, you know, and then there's a bunch of other people, including this officer. Now, with that said, I do think that this police officer was extremely suspect. Um, you know, he seemed um, creepy toward Yvonne, um, didn't seem to understand boundaries. I think he just randomly showed up at her home one time and she was a little afraid. Um, but, you know, at the at the end of the day, and, and him not giving any kind of statement, it, that does not sit well with me. But I did understand the officer's um, reasoning in that he had to keep heading down a, a certain path. And that's because, you know, Chris and I have all along, in this case versus other cases, this case was highly documented. We had stacks and stacks and stacks of suspects that we went through each and every one of them all over again, trying to find the connection. But can I tell you guys the funniest thing that obviously this didn't air, but I just still think this is the funniest thing I've ever seen in an investigation. The psychic. <laughs> Remind us what remember? that was. <laughs> the law enforcement goes to a psychic and like, I guess she's pretty popular and they use her often. I don't know, but it's the funniest thing I've ever read. And it is pages and pages and pages of this psychic. Did she lead, did she lead them to Joe Wilkes? Oh my God. She led them <laughs> to everyone and their mother and their child and their father. It was just comedy. Like at a certain point, if I were these officers, I would have gotten up and walked out. Like at one point it's, you know, somebody with a tattoo behind bars, but on another point it's, it is somebody with a badge, but at another point it's somebody, she just, she goes, it's like one of those things where they say sometimes psychics who aren't real, because I don't want to, I don't want to knock all psychics. You never know when people have a supernatural power. But I will say that um, this one did not. She, mm-hmm. she instead was like, you know, trying to just throw out everything that would lead to a possible is, human being. <laughs> there is our our taxpayer money at work. Chris, this might be a good time for you to explain to the audience because I know you and I have talked about this on the road quite a bit. When you're investigating a homicide. It's not necessarily your job to try to eliminate 
every single possible suspect. Um, explain, explain why that is. It looked like in these in this investigation, it looks like that that there were just like Fatima said, there were a lot of people of interest in this case. So you have to go back and and try to to talk to those people or eliminate them, you know. But in particular, in this case, when the tip for, from Joe Wilkes came in, that was. You know, that was eye opening. You got two completely independent witnesses who says that months earlier they saw Joe Wilkes and everything that they said could be either corroborated by video evidence, by some sort of uh, purchase or or by the fact that, you know, a, a, a receipt. So these two people were completely independent. They had no no type of stake in this game. Uh, or, or, and and they just gave the information, and it and it took a lot to get those two people to talk because this is the couple and this is the couple in the food court, right? Who said that this, Joe came up the night of the murder and said that he was going to go kill someone, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, they, they, I mean this this couple that when they came in, you know, it took a lot to get them in because you know, look, they were sitting on this information for a while, and and I, I didn't think that from what I understood or from what I read and talked to the uh, investigators in this case, that couple did not, were not, they didn't really want to give up this information. They didn't really want to talk to law enforcement. It was the female that was there with her boyfriend who finally convinced him to go down and talk to law enforcement. She actually pushed him to go in, go down and talk to law enforcement because he was a friend of Joe Wilkes. She did. So, and from the start, she actually, you know, she said that that night, um, she thought you know, it was she suspicious. She yeah, thought his she actions didn't know were suspicious. Joe, and mm-hmm. when, she, when they walked away, she said that was really creepy. You know that that disturbs me. Like, should we go and tell the police? And her mm-hmm. boyfriend apparently told her, "No, nah, that guy's just weird. Like, I, I don't really think that you know he meant it. Sometimes he just tries to be cool like that, and mm-hmm. you know, kind of brushed him off. Like everybody knows he's kind of weird. And so she went home and didn't think anything of it really until she saw on the news later that a woman was killed. And at that point, I think she told her grandma and she was afraid. Um, Mm -hmm. And her grandma said, no, you need to, you need to tell the police. And she didn't want to. And I guess she asked her boyfriend to, and he said he didn't want to. So the grandma called the police and said, look, you need to come over. My, my granddaughter has this information. You need to interview her. Um, And so that's, you know, when they gave up that information and they're just, you know, they're not even connected. And like Chris said, suddenly everything they're saying is corroborated by receipts and, um, you know, a stay at the Comfort Inn. Um, But what's really important here, too, and I don't know if you would agree with me on this, Chris, but... I, I would say if those two people came forward, I don't know if they ever, if those law enforcement officers would have ever solved this crime because no. the way they were headed, no. I mean, yes, they were going through each and every suspect, but they had already ruled out David because, you know, he did have an alibi that night. He was off doing something. Um but they were just kind of all over the place. If this couple had never come forward, they would have never found out about Joe. Yeah. So that that's one of those things where we have to, you know, we have to bring to attention, you know, the inexperience of some of the departments when they don't have a whole lot of homicides. It's, you know, if I remember correctly, this, this department didn't work a lot of homicide cases. And, and you know, so, yeah, the exper- inexperience shows. But when you steal. Think about the information that Joe Wilkes gave them and how he corroborated everything and actually was the reason why they were able to break down Davis alibi. You know, you cannot just jump over that and overlook all of the information that he gave during his statement. So let's talk about Joe Wilkes. All roads in this case lead through Joe Wilkes. Now, for whatever reason, David Thorne and his loved ones 
uh, continue to tie themselves in with him, right? And and Fatima, mm-hmm. you had mentioned earlier, as probably as their attorney, you would recommend otherwise. But for whatever reason, they're doing this. Now, one of the ways that they're trying to sort of fight back is to say that Joe Wilkes, when he gave his very detailed confession, had been coerced by the police. Now, Fatima, you went and you took uh, a lot of the interrogation tapes. You brought him to a forensic psychologist. Um, and... I want to play one of the clips and talk a little bit about what you guys decided and why the psychologist really came to the conclusion that he hadn't been coerced. Okay, did she get up and try to run? Well, she tried to run out the door. What door did she try to run out? The big glass door to the slide. But she was behind. I saw the thing in front of me too. Yeah. That interview is really tough to listen to. You know, I've been doing this um, a couple of seasons now, and I always get to interview the psychologists, especially when it comes to confessions. So I'm at the point now where I like to make predictions based, you know, after I listen to it, I make my little prediction of what I believe, whether it was coerced or not, and and why. Um, and I'm getting better at it because, I mean, in the beginning, I always, of course, naturally come in and I'm like, everyone's <laughs> coerced and every, you know, could you have, this person was manipulated and, you know, you find, you find ways, right? But now that I'm looking at it and truly as an independent person, independent expert, I, I, I make my prediction. And then I sit down with a psychologist and I was not surprised at her conclusion in this case, you know, in listening to this confession, one of the key things that you hear is they, they question him in the beginning and they're definitely saying, look, we, we know that you had something to do with it. You need to tell us what happened. And they are doing that whole thing, right? Which is not illegal. Um, and the, the key note in this is his confession is in complete narrative form. Okay. So he begins to tell a story without interruption. I mean, they may once in a while, once in a while say, and what happened next? Or like they say there, did she get up to run? And I'm going to key you in on to why they asked that. Um, but one of the main things is that he is telling a story, unlike other cases we've had. And I always go back to this one because it was what I believe a, a coerced confession, Casey Grondon, you know, where the, the police officers continuously insert themselves into the narrative. OK, and so maybe this happened next. Is that what you're saying? Um, and, and then this happened. Right. Is that it? And they're kind of it's leading. It's leading questions. Right. Um, in this case, that those were not present when he begins to tell his story. He one breaks down and sobs, and you just you feel that that's authentic. Do we know? No, but you can hear it in his voice. You can hear the pain and and the trauma. He's reliving it. He re- he regrets it. Um, and so you hear him telling the story, and he's beginning to give detail. Now, one thing that's interesting in this case is it's true. Based on what we found out, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Some of the things he says doesn't match the crime scene. And so because of that, um, the family felt like Joe Wilkes was coerced into giving this confession. And, you know, he wasn't there, which is why he gives the wrong kind of confession. Here is something that's extremely important that we saw in law enforcement notes early on before even meeting with Joe three months following the crime. They already knew where the murder had been committed. And what I mean by that is they knew, law enforcement knew, her throat was not slit on the couch. It was slit near the window. And so near the sliding door. 
And so they actually already know that when they have this interview with Joe. And Joe is proceeding to set, to tell the story despite the fact that things don't fit, they're they're letting him continue. But I think right there they do ask, did she get up to run? Because they're trying to, in their minds, they're trying to fit this crime to, to what happened there, this picture of what happened. And they and they already know where she likely had her throat slit. So I think that that's the only point where they tried to lead him. And he says, yes, she did get up to run. But I think that's because law enforcement's trying to get his narrative to fit a little better with the crime scene. But to say that they fed him this story and he just, you know, gave it back makes no sense because the story doesn't fit. If law enforcement had fed him the story, they would have told him, hey, when you confess, you know, or uh, it happened by the sliding door, right, Joe? You know, and he would have he would have corroborated that if he was coerced. But no, he says something different now as a law enforcement, as investigator, that would make you think, gosh, maybe he didn't do it. He's not, you know, he's not explaining exactly how it happened. But those are little details, you know, the way that he talks about pulling her head back and slitting her throat and, and what he said when he got there. Um, so, you know, his whole story is he he walked in and Yvonne's like, what are you doing here? And he walked you know, straight in. Walked straight door. in. He didn't, he didn't knock on the door, didn't ring a doorbell. He walked he straight in. The door, so he knew somehow the door was open, which investigators could have fed him that. But once again, if you're feeding someone information and it's a coerced confession and you yourself understand the evidence to be a certain way, then the person you're coercing is going to basically give back that evidence. And he doesn't. Chris, this whole discrepancy between the screen door and the couch, and I think that those two locations are 10 feet apart. As a homicide investigator, how concerning was that to you? So let me just also, let me go back to something that Fatima said that I just want to address it. She said that she's getting better at knowing what (laughs) uh, the convicts, uh, what they're going to say about the convicts confession, whether it was coerced or not, because she's talked to the psychologist. I just think that she's probably getting better at it because she works with a pretty fucking awesome homicide (laughs) investigator. I just want to make sure I got that out there. Uh, So, yeah. But you know what? That is very true. We have uh, we've had a lot of conversations. You've taught me a lot about, you know, the strategies and, and the and what you look for in interviewing someone to tell whether they're lying or not. And since our conversations on that, I've also gone into a lot of different studies on the kinds of things to note when someone is giving a false confession or um, when they are lying and, and, you know, giving you answers. So gotcha. I appreciate that partner. But yeah, so credit where credit is due. Sorry about that. Yeah. And I, I, I try to give, I try to give you yours too, because you've taught me a lot throughout these uh, three <laughs> years we've been doing this, this whole reasonable doubt thing. <laughs> but uh, so here's the thing when you are, when you're investigating cases, you know, sometimes there are going to be details that are just not, that they won't get out. You And you as an investigator, it's up to you to kind of pull that information out. When when the family said that he's, he messed up the uh, confession and he said that she was killed on the couch and she was actually killed by the door, I was just like, Fatima, I had read already read that they knew that she was killed by the door. And so I, I was trying to figure out w- what they they meant. I hadn't listened to Joe's confession. Well, what he says is, is, is not necessarily the way that they put it out to us. He did mention that <laughs> She got up and ran towards the door. And to me, that was kind of, that was that was a huge clue clue for me because I've had cases where I've worked homicides where say uh, I remember a case that I worked that I had a female that had been being abused by her husband. 
and uh, she stabbed him. And when I talked to her and she started confessing to me that she had stabbed him, you know, she says, well, I just stabbed him one time and I know I dropped the knife and then I ran. In the autopsy, this this female, she had stabbed him like 12 times, you know, 12 times. So it's it's possible. It's, and I've had literally hundreds of cases where a person that shot at somebody and says, well, I only shot him one time and they shot him 10 or 12 times. You know, it, it, I've had lots of cases. So now some of those cases, these people are trying to uh, uh, deflect or either they're trying to not seem so uh so violent when they're doing this. But there are some cases where people just don't, those exact details, those precise small details, after you've murdered someone, sometimes you just don't remember, you know, but when David, when, when Joe says that I, I, I killed her as she was running towards the door, that makes sense to me. So she was standing by the door. She was probably trying to get away from him. And then he jumps up, grabs her by the head, grabs her by the hair, and cuts her throat. I was satisfied with the confession that he gave. Were there, were there some areas that some people will be left to decipher on their own? Yeah, there were some. But you he, know, interestingly I was, I was too, satisfied said, with his confession. He, he also said that he didn't see any children there, which explains, you know, most of the children were in the room next door. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, he, there was one child we know, um, and I, I believe, um, you know, he had a, a disability who, you know, was left wandering the house. They said mm-hmm. that when, when the police arrived or when the mom got there, she said this child was not in the bedroom, um, which is really, oh God, that stayed with me. That, that really did. But, um, and so he even says, you know, I don't remember there, you know, when they say that, you know, did you see a kid there? That's a leading thing. And he says, no, I didn't. You know, if you're being coerced and, and you feel pressured and threatened to give them what they need, you, you say, there. yes, there was one kid there that was wandering, you know, and they do that a few times. Did you see this? Cause they're wandering. Um, and he, he definitely does not answer in the affirmative. And so if you are being led and you feel threatened and you feel you're going to be facing something like a death penalty if you don't give them what they need, then you're going to answer those things the way you think they want them answered, which would be, oh yeah, I do remember that. And he doesn't. One of the things that I think it's important that we express is that during his confession, he does say, you know, one of the reasons was he wanted, um, Joe says, David wanted custody of his son. Um, you know, he had actually just found out that, uh, that was his son, you know, David wanted Brandon and he didn't, I think, want to have to deal with Yvonne. And we know that David also had a girlfriend, um, that he had been with a while, Amy, and there were rumors she didn't like this whole scenario, obviously. So bottom line is if you, you know, if you want your kid, um, and you're not going to be able to have them because the mom's had him for two years. So you're just going to get visitation, but you want this child, then it isn't unreasonable to think that you would do anything to get them, you know, the mom out of the picture. So that was one of the motives that, you know, Joe gave that made sense. And, and it wasn't and, about and, the money. And maybe control, right? I mean, this is somebody control. who, you know, took wayward kids like Joe Wilkes, like Josh, and they hero worshiped him and he fed off that. So Chris, you finally got a chance to talk to Joe Wilkes. And Joe Wilkes, depending on which day of the week you ask him, has a different story about what happened that night. And he gave you a brand new story that he had never told before. And I wanted to get your reaction to what he had to say. Let's talk about the night of the murder. What were you doing that night? 
I was at the Comfort Inn at the Carnation Mall in Alliance, Ohio. I was waiting on Yvonne to come down there, but she never showed up. Why would she meet you at that hotel? Because I had propositioned her to pay for sex and she accepted. So I got a room at the Comfort Inn. So why would you proposition her for sex? I liked her. She was cute. So that's who I propositioned. And wait a minute. This is a guy that you looked up to. This is his child's mother. What would make you a friend of his, a guy that you look up to, a guy that you call your big brother? Why would you proposition his his child's mother for sex? I didn't know that him and Yvonne was even messing around anymore. But they got a child in common. That never made anything. Yeah, man. You know, so... Look, one thing that I look for when I'm doing these investigations is consistency, you know, um, and I knew that there was no way that Joe could have been consistent in what he had told law enforcement prior to and and then telling me the same thing and expect help. So I, I, I kind of figured that he would uh, he would uh, change his story up some. But, you know, I, I noticed during his interview that he he gave an explanation on up for what we could prove. You know, we could prove that he was over at the hotel. He knew that. Uh, and, and we had evidence of that. So he, yeah, I'll admit to being at the hotel room. I'll admit to going to the mall, but I won't admit to telling those, uh, you know, the independent witnesses that, you know, I, I, I went and, uh, I was going to kill a, a, a girl, you know, and I, I'll admit to buying a knife that night. But, you know, I, I I just buy knives, you know, I buy knives all the time. So, you know, yeah, I, I was completely unsatisfied with the way that he explained away things, uh, the way that he talked about things, because, you know, I guess he couldn't he couldn't explain to what the reason why these folks came down and said what they said. There was no explanation for that. And that's why you see me very upset at the end, because I think I hit my wits end with this whole let's poke, poke, poke holes um, when all of these other things are pointing at least to Joe here. And one of the main things that that disturbed me is that Joe continuously changes his story. He has the first confession to the police where he says he's a part of it. Then he recants that um, confession to an attorney later. Then years later, he's on the news. So Joe Wilkes's story the, to the news reporter is that he goes to the house to meet with Yvonne because they were supposed to meet up. And she says, I have somebody coming over. Can you come back in an hour? So he goes, okay, and he leaves, and then he comes back in an hour and finds her body on the floor, tramples through the crime scene, runs out, and doesn't tell anyone. This is the story he's telling a news reporter years later. It's it's on YouTube. You can find it. And it's the most ridiculous story because he's obviously trying to explain away certain, um, you know, evidence against him, such as the possible footprint from his shoe. But, you know, it's really disturbing because then again with Chris, he doesn't tell this story. So you'd think, you'd think he'd know we're going to find all these different versions of the story that he's been changing throughout the years. But instead he sits with Chris and doesn't even say he's at the crime scene. Well, and I think Chris called, you called him out on it. You said, wait, so everything you've told law enforcement and everything you've said up till now is a lie and this is the truth for the first time and he said yeah yeah and so that's and that, why that, I just, was mad. that that just goes to show you know where he we, you can't trust anything that joe Wilkes says you you can't you really can't uh you know i think that and i've always said that i think the first confession or the first statement is usually the truest confession or the first statement 
he he's lied throughout the entire time and that's why i think that the family in this case or the loved ones and that have been advocating for for david you know they need to separate themselves from joe because joe is is waste i mean i say he's knee deep in the episode but he is shoulders deep i mean he just barely has his nose up above water in this case um, and then it continues from there that Joe said, you know, Thorne was going to give him money that Thorne does show up days later, giving $200 to Joe. And so Joe asks his friend, take me to the mall. I want to get some new shoes. He buys some, you know, some nice Nikes. She's even like, wait a minute, this guy never has money. And now he's like buying these nice Nikes. And she says that when they left the mall, he's, he puts on those shoes and says, hold on, pull over. I want to throw away my old shoes. And he throws them in some dumpster somewhere. All of these things connect David and Joe, and it just corroborates um, Joe's original confession to the police. And and isn't it possible that the reason that, and I don't mean to sound too cynical, but I think this is possibly realistic, the reason that uh, David Thorne's supporters are so tied into Joe Wilkes is they're afraid that if they separate themselves, he'll just go back to version one of his story. Yeah, it's quite very, very much possible. You know, look, if he, <laughs> you know, yeah, I think that that's ding, the reason ding. why he has such a, <laughs> such a, a huge following behind this case. But I just don't know if, if some of these, the, some of the followers, you know, hey, I, I think you have to make some some incredible leaps if you're going to separate these cases. And like Fatima said, Fatima said that, you know, hey. They're going to have a tough time by uh, in, in separating these cases. I absolutely agree with that. But at least you're not saying that I am 100 uh, percent convinced that David is innocent and I'm 95 percent convinced that Joe Wilkes right. is and that and that's that's key, Rob, right there. I mean, if they say Joe's lost his marbles, um, I don't know why he ever implemented. Um, I'm sorry, I don't know why he ever incriminated um, David in this crime, and he he probably did it on his own. You know, he's a, a wacko guy. If they had said those things, it would make sense. But yeah, then you have the risk of Joe backfiring and saying, "No, actually, everything I've said is true." You are listening to the Reasonable Doubt podcast. Uh, Coming up after a very, very short break, Fatima talks to someone who is actually there at the scene of the crime, and Chris finally goes one-on-one with the convict. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. All right, welcome back to the Reasonable Dad podcast. Um, all right, Fatima, you got a chance to talk to Preston. Um, he was there. I mean, he was locked in a bedroom, uh, but he was there when this all happened. And you guys had an exchange that was just haunting and it really stuck with me. And I want to play it and, uh, and get your reaction to it. What do you remember about the night that your mom was murdered? I went downstairs to go lock the door. I got maybe just a few inches away from locking that door. I got scared. I still don't know why. I was always scared of the dark anyway. So I ran upstairs and she said, did you lock the door? And I lied to her. I was like, yeah, I locked the door. And the next time I woke up, there was just cops everywhere. They're trying to like lead us out. I remember seeing my mom laying there. Do you remember seeing blood? And Yes, I still do. I can't help but wonder, do you ever feel guilt for not locking that door? Oh, all the time. I lived with it for years. But the end result would have been the same. person that wants to kill will find a way. This one, I was so nervous. Um, I was sweaty. I was just... I, I, I didn't, it, it's difficult to talk to somebody who has been through that kind of trauma that he's been through and ask him certain questions. You know, I did have to ask him about his mom's past and certain rumors and, you know, that was tough. I tried to do it, um, in a way that was, you know, really just, we're, we're trying to get down to the truth here. And he was extremely helpful. You know, he actually never said a bad thing about David. Um, from what he remembers about him, he seemed like a nice guy. He was I think only he was, what, six years old, I think. Yeah, he was young, but he, you know, he was, and David was only in the picture for a little while, but, you know, he does remember David being really nice to them. Um, and, you know, he didn't see how David could ever really do this, but he also, you know, just wanted answers himself. Um, he's also said, you know, for his brother, you know, Brandon, it's, it's been hard all these years. Obviously he doesn't have a mom and he doesn't have his dad, his dad's locked up. So that's really difficult too. But yeah, this is by far one of, one of my hardest interviews. And I just, I pray for all those children that were involved. Chris finally got a chance to go one-on-one with, uh, David Thorne. And, um, before I play a clip of it, You know, the police chief had said he's going to be so charismatic and he's going to charm you. I don't know. I didn't find him all that charismatic. (laughs) No, uh, you know, David was just kind of like a a normal guy that's been convicted of murder who's fighting for it to make people believe that he's innocent. So I didn't, you know, I didn't see a, uh, 
Freddie Freeman in him or anything like that. You know, he, he just, you know, he answered his answers and, and gave his statement and shared what he thought was the truth to me. So we were talking about this whole thing about how he's so tied into Joe Wilkes and how that's a mistake. And you try to give him some outs. You kept trying to sort of help him try to separate himself with Joe Wilkes. And pretty much no matter what you said, he really wasn't taking it. Do you think Joe killed Yvonne? I can tell you 99.9% he didn't do it because science says he didn't do it. That point one is between him and God because I don't know. I wasn't there. I was not involved with anything. To me, you're, you're, you're trying to muddy the waters. I'm asking you specifically about the fact that the night this young lady was murdered, he buys a knife and he tells two people that he was about to murder someone. I have not a clue as to how this information was given to him. Well, maybe it wasn't given to him. Maybe he actually did those things. Is it possible that Joe may have been in love with Yvonne, got angry with her because she didn't give him sex, kills her, and when after he's arrested, he blames everything on you? I mean, in the realm of theoretics like that, anything is possible. You know, as far as David goes, David never would can will never say that. OK, look. If Joe had something to do with this, he acted alone. I had nothing to do with this, you know, but he it, it seems at every point at, and I gave him three or four opportunities. I, I think I gave him four or five different opportunities to uh, even uh, to, to, to admit to something or give him give me something to work with multiple opportunities. But he still consistently says that, you know, no, this was fair to him by law enforcement. And, you know, yeah. I, I have to agree. With, 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 with what we just said at the earlier part of this uh, uh, the podcast that, you know, hey, maybe they, the only reason they're doing this is because they know if Joe goes back to his original story, there is absolutely no way David would get out. Right. It's like, David, your boy bought a knife that night and mm-hmm. and he bought gloves. Mm-hmm. He goes to Walmart twice. He buys a knife and he buys gloves. Right. Because you don't want to buy a knife and gloves because together because a little too suspect. (laughs) So maybe Joe is a little smarter than we give him credit for. But, um, you know, and he's obviously staying at a hotel near where Yvonne lived. It's like everything would tell two strangers that he's going to kill someone. Right. Right. And so you'd think once again, yeah, separate yourself. It'd be a good idea. And so the fact that they don't is is why we're here. And, you know, yes, everyone who watched this is going to say, well, they said that may not have been the murder weapon. We're not here for poking holes, as I said in the end. Unless that, unless that knife could have absolutely not been the murder weapon, then we would be able to help in a case like this. Next week, we have got a case that, uh, you know, this, this was really quite a season, but this case will blow your mind. It is a loved one who is not only the daughter of the victim, but the wife of the convict. Stew on that for a bit, but it is an amazing show. Please watch it uh, next Monday at 10 p.m. on Investigation Discovery. Until then, my name is Rob Rosen. I am the creator and executive producer of Reasonable Doubt. I'm Fatima Silva, criminal defense attorney and co-host of Reasonable Doubt. And I am investigator Chris Anderson. I am retired homicide investigator and the co-host of Reasonable Doubt. All right, everybody. Have a great week. We'll talk to you next week. 